Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Today we have another really good conversation between a lot of different people. It's not just Brandon and I interviewing one person. We have some great folks. I'm going to let Brandon introduce what we're talking about and uh, who these people are in a minute. But uh, as most of you know, but some of you may be new to the show, I'm Phil Dark, your host, Brandon Stiver, who I've mentioned already. is my co-host, my brother. We get to do this together and have great conversations that we love when you engage with us to be able to be thinking deeply about these really, really important issues that help us to, um, and as we understand these issues better, we can love uh, orphaned, vulnerable children, families uh, better and better. Uh, every day. So, Brandon, what do we got going on today, man? Yeah, well, thanks, Phil. I mean, we're getting into another one of our conversations episodes. And, you know, in this particular episode, you know, our audience, we've talked about care reform. We've talked about, you know, the importance of prioritizing family in terms of, you know, how do we care for orphan and vulnerable children? Well, well, the best way is hopefully to not allow them to continue in their orphanhood. Uh, and that looks like getting them into family, but there's a whole infrastructure, uh, as as we're well aware, and as we'll even discuss today, there's a multi-billion-dollar infrastructure around the care and protection of children in the global South. And uh, what we we're going to get into today is what does it look like to work within those existing structures to bring transformation. So we're going to be talking about yeah, supporting transition, and we have a few professionals working in. Uh, various capacities with a few different organizations and, and contexts uh, represented. So uh, on the show today, uh, a couple returners and, and one new. So uh, Ellie Oswald from Faith Action is here with us. Jonathan Dowell from One Million Homes slash Ways of Care Solutions and Hannah Wan from ACCI. So uh, we're going to get into a great conversation with uh, these guests. And uh you know, as I was kind of thinking through the different conversations that we wanted to have and in introducing this format, um, obviously, you know, being a staff member at One Million Home, this is really kind of core to how we operate. We really want to see kids get into family, but we know that those things don't just happen overnight. There is a transition period. There's a lot of people that it involves a lot of various stakeholders um, and then all the way down to the child and family level. So this was definitely a conversation that I wanted to have. And, you know, there's different people that are operating in this space. So um, really quick, uh, I'm just going to kind of open up with coming to each different person. And and if you could just introduce yourselves and, and really kind of share, uh, you know, what brought you into working in this space of supporting transition. So uh, Ellie, I'll come to you first. No, great. Well, it's so good to be here with you guys and especially with Hannah and Jonathan, who have incredible practical experience. I'm probably the ivory tower one of the room. Um, I'm with Faith to Action, and Faith to Action is really focused on helping Christians access and then utilize best practices when it comes to caring for orphaned and vulnerable children around the world. Um, so we provide free educational resources and services to help other people do their very best for children. And we've been doing this for 17 years. And as we go on that on with our work of helping people understand the importance of family for every child, we whether you know that's biological family, relatives, foster care, adoptive family. As we're raising awareness, we always run across people who are deeply involved in running residential care, whether they're 
significant funders, founders um, of an orphanage, and they want to make this shift. And so that's where we've had to be responsive and say, we're going to journey with you to get access to the technical support you need to do that good work. Um, You said it in your intro, but this change um, is not easy. And it's really important that we get it right or else it could be the children that suffer. Um, So we're doing all we can do to help those people connect um, with the resources and the support that they need to transition really well. That's good. Thanks, Ellie. And and Phil and I will take no offense that you said you were especially glad to be on with Hannah yeah. and Jonathan. Uh, I, took offense. I took oh, offense. Okay, sorry. And I took yeah, offense. So, yeah, I won't take offense. Yeah, I did, but that's okay. Well, you know, this is such old hat for Ellie. Uh, she even contributed to our 200th episode, which was so sweet of her. Uh, so yeah. we, ta- I take no offense. Phil can speak for himself. Listener, so you know. Thank you. you got oh, we got a listener on the show today. Thanks, Ellie. I just That's took good. it as you you'd heard so much from us that you know it's just you're you're sick of it. So, but uh, <laughs> she's sick of you, Phil, not me. All right, uh, I'm just kidding, obviously, just to make sure people know, I'm just joking because sometimes <laughs> that does not come across on the air. So, okay, there you go. It's yeah, there we go. All right. Uh, Hannah, why don't you uh, introduce yourselves to our audience and and how God brought you into this space? Sure. Thanks for that. And thanks for having me on. I've actually never even listened to a podcast before, if you'll believe it. So you have somehow wrote me into this. Um, But yeah, I'm Hannah from ACCI, um, and that's Australian Christian Church's International Relief. Um, And full disclosure, I came into this space as an orphanage director, um, I'm very open about that because um, it's where I kind of cut my teeth um, and discovered firsthand just how hard transition is. Because at the time we were doing this back in 2011, there really weren't very many guidelines. There weren't people doing it. You almost had to kind of whisper about it. Um, people were scared to talk about it. And so we were really lost um, and kind of just groping our way in the darkness to how you figure this out. And we didn't even know what we were doing, honestly. You know, it all started because we decided that we wanted to reconnect children with their families for the purpose of them having a support network when they actually aged out of care. So it wasn't ever meant to be transition um, because most of the kids in our care actually were true orphans. Um, But as we soon discovered, they did, of course, have families. Um, And so as we started to connect them and we had families come and visit, we would take the kids to visit. They would do phone calls. Um, very organically, some of the parents and kids started to come to us and say, hey, could we actually maybe live together? Um, and so that's how that's how it started. And I had no idea what I was doing. Um, we, Like I said, in country, there really weren't very many resources. And so I had to reach outwards um, to you know clinical social workers and people who had done EDI in other settings to try and figure out our way. And so it was really out of that experience where I thought, you know, there must be other that are wanting this kind of help and at least I can share what we what we did wrong and our mistakes and what what did work and so that's really how I got started in that space um, in Cambodia and then I did start working in some of the other countries around Cambodia as well um, and came into contact with ACCI at that point so I'm you know still learning there's still a lot to lot to learn about and still a lot of mistakes that we're making um, but I feel feels like we're getting there, right? And it feels like um, there's more structure. It feels like there's a carved out space that we have. So very happy to be here as part of that. That's good. Well, thank you so much, uh, Hannah, for joining the show. 
a regular listener and a, a, a never listened to it before, it's always good to have a mix. Uh, so thanks so much for coming on and uh, agreeing to come on to this show. We really look forward to learning from you. And I'll just say you're also in good company. I used to work at an orphanage in Tanzania. Uh, I think pretty much all of us uh, in some regard have kind of come from either that mindset or that practice. And and that's why we are also the ones that are most passionate about uh, walking alongside, you know, those organizations that are in good faith, you know, trying their best to serve orphan and vulnerable children. But we do want to see, you know, uh, progress. So uh, thanks so much, uh, Jonathan. I won't ask whether or not you ever listen to the show uh, because you're a close colleague and uh, I would take that too personally. But uh, nonetheless, <laughs> Jonathan, maybe just uh, reintroduce yourself to our audience and and uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Uh, yeah, it is a pleasure to be on the on the show with you guys and among a uh, good company of experience and, and knowledge. And um, so, yeah, my name is Jonathan. I'm, I'm work for One Main Home and our um, venture in Kenya called Ways of Care Solutions. Um, God, God brought me into this really uh, uh, just about 10 years ago when I, when I came to Kenya. I actually didn't have any education in this space or, or experience in this space. I was a business guy. Um, IT and, and project management process stuff, just corporate, um, the corporate world. Uh, and my wife and I answered the call to just kind of quit everything, quit our jobs, quit our careers and come to Kenya to be missionaries and serve, you know, however, however God led. And um, in doing so, we started off with some child sponsorship programs and, and found our ways uh, to an organization called Agape Children's Ministry that was doing um, really post-transition. Uh, they had recently transitioned their model and were still Kind of working out the kinks, um, and so I, I actually never worked directly in in an orphanage setting, but I spent the last decade doing post transition support uh, and seeing what really could happen uh, to an organization uh, when when they adopted that family based approach. Um, and and then I think that's really where I got passionate about this because um, we got to we got to see firsthand the staffs kind of. Um, realization of of and the and the power of family and the the better outcomes that they were seeing the 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 challenges they went through through the transition, but then like the bigger outcomes and the and the better results that they were starting to see, um, and so a lot of my staff came went through the transition themselves, uh, and when you know they 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 say the same things or said the same things that everybody says when they go through transition, and so. Um, it was really, it was really uh, a great opportunity um, to see not only what does transition look like, but if you take transition and you spend the next decade kind of uh, living with that transition, what is it you can accomplish? And and it's huge, and it's made me realize there's there's no better place for a kid to grow up than a safe, health, healthy family. Obviously, uh, you know we want kids to be in a safe place, and that's not always the case, which is why there's a need for organizations and need for support and child welfare services. But um, it, it's, it's a, it is where my faith and family really um, kind of was realized. And when we realized, you know, we, we'd been doing it for 10 years, but we're still seeing the same problems, we realized we can't do this alone. That one organization by itself, um, heads down, just trying to do the work is not enough to change the system. And so that's when we partnered with One Main Home and started up this venture called Weza in Kenya, which is just focused purely on doing transition support for organizations uh, and um, being able to see other organizations now going through the same kind of struggles and questions um, is 
is is encouraging and exciting and also it's challenging uh, because each and every kid's case is unique and each and every family is is a struggle that has to be fought for um, and so there's no easy answers but there's hope that there's there's a way forward in this and that um, kids can grow up in safe and loving families um, that's that's a powerful hope to have and carry yeah that's good thanks Jonathan um, so as we are talking about transition support services, uh, talking about coming alongside organizations, right? It's a pretty, it's a, if we just say, okay, here's an orphanage, a residential care facility, and here's something that's family, community-based type of service, there is a process, you know, to go from point A to point B. So uh, that process can look like various things. Um, there's no monolith in terms of like, well, all family-based care looks like this uniform you know, type of service. It can look like any number of things. And we've seen a lot of variance in terms of what people transition to become. Uh, orphanages are also not a monolith, but they at least from a, from a services standpoint are, are, are a bit more uniform than what we might see them transition to, right? Um, so, I mean, right off the bat, some of the people that have been on the show before, we can think of Global Child Advocates, uh, you know, more in, in Southeast Asia where, where ACCI has done a lot of work. You know, they transition and start doing more foster care or they set up social enterprise or, you know, they do early education. We can think about Cherish Uganda. We just had, you know, Brent on the show not too long ago. They transition and they really double down in healthcare services. They, you know, they, they also do education services, but it's more vocational leaning. So there's any number of things that organizations might transition to, but they are going to rely on typically... Uh, hopefully, rely on other people that have been down this path before. So I think it'll be helpful if we do start with some definitions, some understandings. And I'm going to come to Ellie first, because a few years ago in 2020, uh, Faith to Action conducted the Transition Support Services Survey. We will link it in the show notes. We're going to have a lot of links in the show notes uh, for people that want to follow up. But this survey, you know, really kind of took a pulse and developed some understanding of what it is that we're even looking at precisely. Ellie, can you just kind of overview that survey and kind of help us understand what it is that we're discussing and, and even who are the people that are kind of engaging within this transition support space? Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, this is an exciting time. Faith Action has been around 17-ish years. Um, and uh, the people we're working with now are recognizing the last five years we're really seeing an acceleration of change. Um, countries around the world, systems of protection and care are in reform, which is incredibly exciting and also uh, a bit scary. And so, you know, we're seeing commitments um, from governments to family-based care, non-governmental organizations, like maybe some of the listeners here today. We're seeing donors starting to have a different uh, requirement. We're seeing um, advocate advocates really pushing this work um, internationally, domestically. Um, so it's an exciting time. But until recently, um, as Hannah kind of alluded to, there's been limited understanding of what support is actually needed to help an organization move from um, a focus on residential care towards family-based and community-based services to support children. Um, and then also a limited understanding of what support exists and where it exists for organizations that are trying to do this important work of transitioning. Um, so... We know that organizations need help, but it was a it's really the question we were looking at is, so who can help them? Who can most appropriately help them? 
Um, so this study, again, was a few years ago. So a lot of progress has been made since then. But it tried to um, bring light to existing organizations and individuals who are providing or or could have potential to provide assistance um, on the ground um, to organizations in transition, specifically those who could provide things like individualized coaching to an organization, specific technical support around social work and all of the other areas where there's technical needs in transition. Um, so we went as far and wide as we could, and we knew that was still limited, asking everyone we could to share it with everyone they could, um, and really looking at um, what services an organization or an individual provides, where they're working, and some other really important questions. So um, just a few quick kind of findings that came from that study. Um, you know, excitingly, of our respondents, um, they had supported more than 1,500 transitions of residential care across 61 different countries. Um, so there is a significant level of experience that exists and again, this survey was was is not going to be comprehensive. That that's not possible. You know, there's pockets of knowledge that we'll never be able to access at one point. But we're trying to get as much um, as we can. So uh, that was exciting to kind of reaffirm that that experience exists. Um, but also, almost half of the respondents reported that they lacked resources and capacity to support a whole transition process. So of those people that have been doing them, at least half of them, like we're humble enough to go. And I'm not sure I am, we're, you know, we're as well equipped as we could be to be supporting those transitions. So that was pretty, a kind of a pretty important kind of finding. Um, uh, so with the, we say 5.4 million children, but we know it's a lot more than that, that children who are currently in residential care. Um, and then this increased pressure that we're seeing for children to be reunified with their families and placed in family-based or placed in family-based care. Um, what we're imagining, and I think we're also experiencing, is a shortage of organizations and individuals that can actually provide support services to transitioning um, residential care centers. Um, so it really highlighted the need to build the capacity and increase the accessibility to transitioning support service providers, if I can use that term, which I, we yeah. simply made up for this survey. <laughs> We're all using different <laughs> terms, so that might be a term we can clarify. Let's just it's, clarify today. <laughs> yeah. It's the um, industry term now. It's the industry okay. term now. So keep sure. going, Ellie. You're a trendsetter. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, what I'm really excited to say is in the three years since that work, there has been a real increase in emphasis on collaborating around this issue of needing to increase capacity and access to support for organizations who are transitioning. Um, so um, yeah, we can talk more about that, but it, it, it really put a spotlight on the challenge that we have of ensuring that as these you know transitions are um, catalyzed, we need to be able to help people figure out how to do that really well. Yeah, you know, and, and I think there's there's so much obviously there's so much there we could talk about so many different things but i just want to kind of take a step back right now and we're making assumptions that there are organizations that want to transition and there are thinking about transitioning that that have this desire to transition so what are you seeing um and this is really is an open question i did probably want to start with hannah and or jonathan since ellie just shared a bit but what are some of the main reasons you are seeing in the field especially um why organizations are deciding to, to undertake a transition to family care? 
Um, I can tackle that one. Um, I mean, it's all, you know, just guesses, right? Nobody's really done any formal research on any of this. So it's pretty anecdotal, but um, there's just so much momentum globally that we're seeing. So Ellie already talked about, you know, all the action and stronger stances that national governments are taking. And I think that's obviously putting a lot of pressure um, on the institutions themselves to comply. Um, But then, of course, we're also seeing so much um, pressure on the donors. So from the donor and sending countries, whether that's funding to um, orphanages or to or for um, volunteers or um, tourists to orphanages there, you know, a lot of that is coming into a regulatory framework. And so I think that's all increasing the overall awareness, not only of institutions and donors, that this is a change that's probably inevitable. And that really, you know, has been a huge shift since, you know, 10 years ago, where, like I said, we had to be really careful about that. And so I feel like what that translates to is this overall awareness of institutions and directors that somehow they have to justify their existence. I don't know if you've found that um, in your practice, but, you know, you go to visit any odd one as part of your work and they know that they have to tell you that they have a child protection policy in place, even if it might, might just be a piece of paper that, you know, nobody ever sees. Or, you know, they talk about family reintegration, but what they actually mean is, oh, we just kick out the kids that we don't like. Um, So there is, you know, there is certainly a level um, or a kind of group of institutions that um, have that awareness, but are still, you know, not actually following through with practice, which is a big change from, like I said, 10 years ago, where, you know, you didn't have to talk about those things. and Everybody felt like they were well within their right to run an institution. Hey guys, I wanted to pop in really quick to personally invite you to join me, Phil, and scores of other orphan care leaders at CAFO 2023. The summit is September 20th through 22nd in Oklahoma City and is hosted by the Christian Alliance for Orphans, an alliance of more than 250 respected organizations and a global network of churches committing to helping every child experience God's unfailing love in a thriving family. CAFO 2023 is an unforgettable gathering of more than 2,000 Christian leaders, parents, and practitioners coming together from over 50 countries to worship and learn from best-in-class speakers and leaders. Speakers include author Katie Davis Majors and Bible expositor Dr. Mamusha Fenta, as well as past Think Orphan guests like psychiatrist Kurt Thompson and CAFO president Jed Medifin. There will also be music and worship with special guests Shane and Shane and worship leaders of Wadi Moro. Wow, that is such a lineup. If you are currently serving in or interested in learning more about foster care and adoption, best practices in global orphan care, Christian nonprofit leadership, or church-based ministry, you don't want to miss the wisdom, truth, and guidance at this event. Learn more and register today at kfo2023.org or just click the link in our show notes. Prices go up August 31st, so don't wait. I hope to see you in OKC. I think one of the one of the things that I've seen that has been a re- main reason for transition when, because I think there's different cases. There's there's external pressures like you're talking about donor pressure, cultural pressure, laws and legal frameworks changing, um, and all those things are you know are nice and good. But my favorite transitions is when I find organizations that transitioned without those pressures, because they're free to look at outcomes and say, wait a minute, why why is this not working? You know, um, organizations that that wonder and that question, and they look at their data or they look at their results and they say, "How can we do this better?" 
Um, and those are the organizations that I think I really wish and hope that everyone makes the transition because of those questions. Because those are the questions that I think, unfortunately, so many organizations don't have the luxury to ask. Either donor pressures are saying you have to do this or expectations that you have to do it this way or that way. But we're not free enough as institutions, organizations to necessarily look at our outcomes and really be free to make changes to our operating model to make those outcomes better. Um, and so I even know it's the probably the least amount of reason why people transition. I think that's the reason why we should transition because next year, the year after more research comes out, 10 years from now, new trends come out. We should be always on this kind of path of discovery and transition is, is particularly with care reform is a now problem and a now transition, but in 10 years, it's going to happen again and there's going to be new learning and growing and systems are going to keep changing. And so my favorite is when an organization changes because they have the freedom to look at outcomes and pursue um, better results by testing and, and adopting new models. And, and that to me is my favorite because there's so much hope in there. Um, because they're looking for the best interest of kids and families. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that because you often see the best case scenarios where you have a director who's taken a step back and said, well, if these kids are going to visit their families during the summer, then why do they have to stay here all the time? Right. Or, you know, you get a social worker who comes in, he's hired and he's saying, well, I'm doing all these assessments on families. Why am I not looking at whether they can resume care of their children? And that that's such an organic um agent for change. And like you said, you know, those are the absolute, you know, nicest ones to work with. Um, and then I think on the other hand, um, you know, the reality of the world, unfortunately, is we, a lot of institutions are run by people who don't have that um, kind of drive. They're not necessarily motivated altruistically. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the people who don't have the best interests of kids in mind are in those positions of power. Um, so I think, you know, we've got our favorite ones and the ones that we love to track. And then we also have the reality of the remaining 75%, you know, where it's like, mm -hmm. well, those kids are still in care. Those kids are still at harm. And even if we have to force it somehow, you know, we've still got to do that work. And I think that's kind of the new space that's opening up, you know, whereas a few years ago, it was really the, those early adopters and those innovators and people who really wanted to see that change because they'd experienced what was wrong with it um, versus what we're you know, primarily dealing with now, which is how do you, how do you deal with those people that, you know, shouldn't be in those positions? Yeah. I know, just add that um, we are often working with organizations who have a significant donor side or headquarters in the United States. Um, and more often than not, we see a crisis has pushed them towards full transition. Um, I think, you know, things like a child protection issue coming up where they find, you know, that there's, things that they weren't aware of or that were hushed. Um, same with financial corruption and lack of trust lost with their leader on the ground. Um, and then kind of more towards what Jonathan was talking about. Sometimes you just kind of see just a general discouragement when, you know, a generation ages out and they're not doing as well as young adults. And if they have that freedom to be able to and the commitment to pursue excellence, though, they will start to question what they're doing and not kind of put it off as with excuses. But I think, I mean, the re yes, national pressure is, is effectively pushing people. I think, yes, our awareness raising efforts with the faith-based audience, most Christians, when they, when they find out um, that there's a better way to do it, they want to do it that way. Um, but the reality is too, I think um, this 
this transition space really highlights um, challenges within organizations. Um, and when those things rise up, they start to go, what are we doing? And are we doing it well? Um, so those crises are terrible, but also can be a catalyst for change. Yeah, you know, and I, and I just kind of to tie it together, I, I love what you talked about, Jonathan, as far as the best is when the organizations are the ones that are coming up with the ideas and dreaming about different solutions and within the the best practices, because otherwise I think we're putting our selves at the mercy of other people who I think somebody, I can't remember whether it was Hannah or Ellie talking about the fact that those other people don't necessarily have the best interests of the children in mind, nor might they, they might not even know what those best interests are. And so the people that are closest to the, to the, to the ground are the ones who are going to know the best solutions for those particular children. And so to the extent we can get ahead of the curve and start these conversations before the governments get in, before donors get in, before other people come in and say, no, this is how we have to do it. Because what I'm seeing in several different countries is governments are taking the lead and they're making these different changes and requiring changes that may not make sense in practice at all in particular instances. And But they're coming up with these black, you know, black and white, here it is, here's the answer. We're going to go this direction and they're ignoring the nuances because they just can't do it at that level. They can't deal with the nuances. But if we can on the ground say these are the, the the best practice. These are the things that we need to be able to have. And there are nuances and there is some gray area in some of these things. That's the, going to be the best The best solutions will come out of that. And I just, I think you've probably heard me talk about this before, but, you know, we can see kind of uh, government pressure uh, catalyze a Christian response push against care reform. And we are, we do see that. I mean, to be honest, we see it in some of the countries that are making the best progress. And um, I'm not saying that the government is always right in the way that they're implementing. But I think what you're say highlighting, Phil, is that we can get ahead of that. We don't need to get caught up in that. Like, let's just focus on the best interest of children, what we're called to do in that space, and really move to a space of leadership in care reform. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I always talk about this train that's headed down the tracks. Like the train is moving. We're not going to stop it, guys. So where are we going to be on that train? Are we going to be drugged behind, you know, um, and the caboose kind of screeching on with our brakes? Or could we actually be the headlight of that train, shining the vision that we have in scripture for family and the 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 decades and decades of, of love and support that the church has provided children around the world? Yeah. And that's where I want to be. And I really think um, I think that's part of the work we can do on this podcast is to encourage people to come along and be leaders in this space. Right. Yeah. Well, no, that's really good, Ellie. And and I feel as though what we're getting into is really what we would say is kind of like one of the first steps in terms of transitioning and reforming care, which is shifting the mindset. Right. Uh, you know, how do we actually engage with people to rethink their practices? And it is hard to change people's thoughts. It's hard to change people's behavior. Sometimes we just naturally get entrenched into the things that we know. And sometimes when it's the, the thing that we know is running a children's home, uh, then it's easy to just try to maintain that thing rather than rethinking like, oh, what if I'm actually not doing this the best way possible? What if there's another way to go about this? And I think that that's really critical. And one of the other things going back to kind of some of those external causes is around, you know, of course, we're familiar with uh, the UN General Assembly uh, and their resolution in 2019. Um, 
Jonathan, we'll come to you in a few minutes in terms of like Kenya and some of the some of the kind of big governmental changes in certain countries. We've seen this in Rwanda. We've seen this in El Salvador. Sometimes the government steps in in a way that promotes, you know, reunification or promotes transitioning the the services that are provided. But sometimes it can be heavy handed or what you see even more often is that the government is not being proactive enough to actually promote family care. And I think that that's going to be the majority of countries. Um, Hannah, I would love to kind of come to you. You know, you mentioned 2011, uh, you know, for you having run an orphanage and then, you know, working at ACCI thereafter, uh, you know, you guys were really among some of those early adopters of, you know, international NGOs advocating for care reform, you know, even leading change on the ground, especially, I believe, in Southeast Asia, although you guys have programs elsewhere, too. Um, you know, what were some of those lessons that ACCI learned in those early days as you guys were coming alongside other organizations? Um, so maybe to just start with a little bit of background on how ACCI came into this space, because it, it's different from my story. Um, so ACCI really came in as a donor. So through their affiliation with the ACC Church, um, they were, in essence, donors to institutions all over the world. And so when there was um, transition taking place within ACCI to work towards family-based care and to stop funding institutions, then they came in as the donor partner to institutions around the world to say, hey, you basically you know, need to, need to transition. And so there was that absolute... Um, uh, you have to recognize the power and the influence in that, you know, as much as it was a participatory process. Um, and so I think that, that that was their experience, whereas my experience coming in was really on the director-led side because I was working with directors in country. I was a director myself. And so I think the biggest lesson probably in bringing those two different vantage points together was when I started with working with ACCI as a consultant on their Myanmar project and Rebecca and Nip at the time. Um, and I were saying, well, this is going to be kind of an experiment because we've never had to um, work with donors where we're not the donor. We've never had to work with directors where we're not the director. So we had to, we didn't have that control. We didn't have that power and influence. Um, and so we really learned a lot during that project in Myanmar and it's still going. And now they're registered as a local organization um, and doing some really good work. Um, but we learned a lot about donor engagement and how to walk alongside donors who wanted to see that change but didn't necessarily know how to do it. Um, and a lot of cases where they assumed that it was going to be pretty straightforward and lots of challenges came up and, um, you know, things got pretty ugly in some of the cases. And so it became a question of, well, how do we actually keep the donors engaged? Um, we don't have external funding or pots and pots of it to rely on. If a donor decides that halfway through, I'm really upset that, you know, this director has been lying to me for the past 15 years and I can't take it anymore and I'm going to walk away. And as irresponsible as that sounds, it's completely understandable because, sure. you know, they've had this relationship built, built on trust. You know, it might have been a pastor that they were funding or, you know, it could be any number of things. And so to have that um, disillusionment can really cloud um, the whole process and their involvement in it. And so we were really able to come up with some strategies around how to keep them engaged. We created peer donor groups that had you know monthly calls that moved to quarterly calls. Um, it, in a sense, there were donors that were um, to different institutions that were kind of keeping each other accountable. So you didn't want to see people just dropping off. You wanted to see that the group was together. Um, and then we also kind of looked at how to approach different stakeholders within transition. 
So how do you actually talk to directors who don't really care about the best interest of children? How do you talk to directors who are going to potentially lose their income if they agree to transition? How do you talk to donors who whose whole identities are built around the fact that they have this orphanage that they run or fund? And yeah. so we had to come up with a very um, varied um, kind of toolkit um, around how to tailor that communications, not only around the buy-in, but how do you actually keep them engaged throughout the whole process? So that was a huge, huge learning um, moment for us. Yeah, no, that's really good. And and what I love about ACCI, and you know, obviously Rebecca has been on the show in the past, and uh, what as you guys learn, you guys write things down. And I feel as though ACCI was really pioneering a lot of some of the early resources uh, in this space. So uh, just really appreciate that. You know, Jonathan, I want to come to you. You know, and just kind of looking at the experience of Ways of Care Solutions in Kenya. You know, in kind of talking about the advocacy or the government reform, you know, with the with the children's uh, law that came out last year, um, it really has kind of shifted what it looks like for care and protection around kids in Kenya. And it's kind of created this moment where I think a lot of people within care reform or even orphan care more broadly are kind of looking at Kenya right now to kind of see what is this next case study in terms of uh, care reform. So maybe Jonathan just kind of speak maybe to, you know, what with Kenya being a country that is really promoting family care at the government policy and implementation level, how does that enable your work? Uh, what is that environment like? Well, it's definitely um, changed. So like we, we started working, doing this before care reform um, was, was cemented in law with the New Children Act um, before the national strategy came out. And in fact, we actually didn't start this work for the purpose of transition. Um, we actually started supporting organizations because we believed that reintegration was was the way to, to go, when it, especially when it came to street children. Um, and so our whole goal was actually to just focus on you know, street, street children organizations and teaching them how to do reintegration as a model um, to increase the number of kids that were going home on a regular basis. So reintegration as a service, not reintegration as a response to um, care reform. And, and what we realized was, well, they're actually not all that different. Um, a reintegration of children off the streets and reintegration of, of children out of institutions is largely the same. It's actually somewhat harder uh, in institutional settings than it was with street children. Um, I think the first generation of kids off the streets probably is more difficult than institutional care. But um, after children have been off, you know, haven't been on the streets as long because the program has been operating actually is harder to reintegrate a child, child out of an institution, uh, at least we found over time. Um, so yeah, we started working with it and then care reform happened and we realized, okay, they're, they're one and the same. And we, we really kind of realigned everything we were doing around care reform and, and started expanding our focus on looking at uh, reintegrating children out of institutions and, and transitioning them to prevention models. And um, I think the, the way things started in Kenya was very focused on shutdown on deinstitutionalization, on you shouldn't exist. And so therefore you need to go away and you need to go away in a way that's safe. Um, thankfully, the government has really changed their conversation around this, that it's not about shutdown um, and that, that we're not wanting to shut this infrastructure down, but that uh, the government's leading out the transition is the way that, that we need these organizations to continue to exist because um, it is the majority of the child welfare system in Kenya. And it is um, and it can be used and should be leveraged to in the future. And so transitioning to prevention 
um, to family strengthening, to to other kinds of services that are going to continue to provide support um, has been a transition that I think has been really, I'm, I've been very excited about because it was a much harder conversation when the government was trying to shut everyone down and the organizations are trying to survive. It's, it's, it's too much pressure. Um, and they almost lost the infrastructure that, you know, millions, millions of dollars are being poured into from private organizations, largely faith-based organizations running, large, largely faith-based organizations funding. Um, and all that was going to be gone if we just shut it down. Um, and so thankfully, we've been able to change the conversation. Um, one thing I think that has been a little different because we've never had the power as a donor to just say, you got to change. We've always become in as an outsider, uh, as a service provider. Um, and when you're, we're providing a service to, to a customer, to a beneficiary, like in an orphanage, um, you can't see them as, as the bad guys, you know? Uh, and I, I would question uh, Hannah, I think you've got some wise experience, but 75% of institution directors, not, um, looking out for the best interest of children, I think is probably, um, it'd be, it'd be. A question, a number I'd question a bit. I think what I've experienced oh, yeah. is I just threw that out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, from I, the hip. Yeah. I think I think Hannah, the the thing that that I really love about my job, about what we do, is that there is a lot of faith we can have in these people. It is a blessing to have this infrastructure. These organizations are, if they can be, they are out for the best interest of these kids. And I do think that a lot of the things that they struggle with as directors of organizations that may make them make bad decisions comes down to the to the pressures of poverty and and the lack of support that exists. And so, I mean, I, I still think the transition support services is a little too myopic. We need support services because the support that we need to provide to these organizations operating in the global south is never going to end. And we don't have all the answers and they have the answers. They know how. Um, I first thought that these organizations didn't know what family and community-based care was. But I realized when working with these organizations, they know exactly how to help these families. They just haven't been given the freedom of choice to be able to change their program and their model of their own accord. And when someone provides that space for them, um, they pick better models. And so I think it is definitely a partnership between the donors um, and the organizations that we need these local community-based people we need to believe in them and we need to power into them and equip them and we need to support them. We need to support yeah. them with the best kind of practices that corporations get um, in order to make sure that they're operating at the highest degree of you know, child protection and safety and safeguarding, but at the same time, um, giving them the opportunity to discover new ways of providing and giving them the freedom of choice instead of um, you yeah. know, the pressures that they live in right now. So definitely the government has helped a ton now all of a sudden everybody wants to talk about transition um but i think uh, the the key is balancing that government pressure which is good with a grace-based hope uh, and really valuing these institutions these directors and really equipping them to be able to be the leaders in telling the donors the best way for them to care for children and families in their community yeah well i think i think even jonathan in terms of like if we look at this across contexts, we're probably going to find and see different things, you know? So in Kenya, it might look like this. In Southeast Asia, it might look different. You know, in a forthcoming episode of Think Orphan, we're going to actually be talking about uh, when Westerners are coming into orphanages primarily and using it as a source of exploitation of children. 
and this isn't just kind of in the in the exploitation of like, well, we need a place to send our short-term missions trip. Like, okay, we, we, we talked about that kind of stuff with Hunter Farrell not too long ago. Like, like we know that that's there, but even stuff that is really more overt. So obviously we know that there's a mixed bag and that's probably going to vary from one context uh, to the next for sure. Um, but, you know, as we kind of take a pulse of different countries, you know, and different factors, um, you know, I was, we have a staff here um, that was working in Rwanda at a care provider, you know, and the Rwanda experience is very different from Kenya and they're right in the same country. If we just take a pulse on East Africa in general, we'll see Tanzania where I was and they have a very, uh, laissez-faire, you know, approach to reform of care for children. We could look at Uganda where they say the right thing. And yet there's all these kind of, uh, diverse interests, right? And conflicts of interest within kind of their broader system. So of course, it's going to vary from one country to the next. Uh, I want to come to Hannah and just, uh, you know, maybe even kind of speak to some of the similarities, maybe some of the, some of the differences, you know, that you guys have seen in your work at ACCI. Um, yeah. So I was just, you know, just going back to with what Jonathan was saying, I think it's not, you know, correct of me to say, you know, it's whatever the, the statistic is. But I think the nuance is in where those best interests lie um, in kind of the priority of motivations for people. And I think that's where it gets messy. So I would say, yeah, I think probably most people, you know, are not bad people and they're, you know, they're out to you. Know, most of them get started for the right reasons. But it's all the factors that you mentioned, the poverty, the stresses, um, you know, even Westerners coming in and encouraging um, handling of money with absolutely no record keeping. You know, it's it's a it's a ripe environment for that kind of thing, especially if, you know, you've got a very sick uncle who needs that money and you might just access it for the first time and it becomes a very slippery slope. So I think that's what we're working with. It's not to say that, you know, all these are, are bad situations, but there are these very tricky and very entangled um, situations that people end up in. And it's kind of up to us as those technical support practitioners to come out and help them disentangle that stuff and find a way out of it where that's possible I mean, in other cases, it's kind of too late, um, but hopefully those are more of the minority, whereas in the other cases, you have all these challenges to work through. And I think what's happened so much in the transition support space um, with a lot of organizations is there's kind of this uh, this assumption that if we come in and just tell people what's best for children, then people will kind of figure it out. They'll they'll work out how to, how to get through it and they'll, they'll come out the other end, which I think, you know, all of us in this room can say that, well, that's it's really not that simple. Um, and there's a lot of work that we have to do both internationally and on the ground um, to help those kinds of stakeholders find a way out um, of where they currently are. Um, and I think, you know, there is a lot more um, knowledge and awareness around the need for a diversified approach, um, not just to buy in, but, you know, to to helping people figure out, well, what else could I be doing? So all the post-transition um, programming that Jonathan talked about, um, we need all of that stuff desperately. Um, all the money is there. Um, and how do we kind of work out who are the people that should be running those programs because they have been able to prioritize the best interests of children, where in other cases, the other motivations have unfortunately won out. So I think it's that balance and trying to work out where are you in that spectrum of risk and all that, um, and then coming up with a transition, a transition strategy that's really in accordance with that. Yeah, I, I just want to add one thing to this whole conversation too. Is you know we're talking about things in generalizations, right? Which which we we tend to because we have to at the higher levels. 
But at the same time, we got to be really careful to not put people into a box based on what we've heard, what we assume, what we think is going on at any given place, what we think they think, what we've heard that this organization is doing X, Y, Z, because we've all met people who we've heard stuff about and we're like, oh, wow, you're not doing at all what I've heard you're doing. This is actually some really good work that I thought you were doing this because somebody had said that. And people have different motives to tell why people are doing what they're doing. And so we, and it's hard because it takes time. It takes energy. It takes actually building relationships. But that's what we have to do if we're going to be doing this because we're dealing with human lives. So there's no one place that, there's no places that are the exact same as the other. And so we need to actually build relationships with people, with, with the organizations, understand who they are, not just assume, oh, their donors are doing X, Y, Z, their board's doing X, Y, Z either. We need to make sure that we understand the full picture as we're going in, which is why this is so hard is because we're, we're dealing with people. We're dealing with moving, nuanced, evolving organizations. And rather than saying, oh, this is who you are, I know who you are because you're doing that. Well, they may be doing that because 25 reasons that they don't like, and they, they're trying to move toward that next thing that we 100% agree with. So how can we get to know them, build relationships, meet them where they are, and take them to the next right thing? What does that look like? So anyway, I just wanted to kind of really say good. that from a bigger picture standpoint. Well, and I just, uh, I think that human component, you know, that you're bringing up, Phil, is really true. And going back to something that Hannah said that I really agree with is that entanglement. Um, I have talked with people that I very distinct sitting in Moshi, Tanzania, where I was uh, advocating for family care, saying, hey, the church here is is sufficient, right, to meet the needs of orphan and vulnerable children. Uh, seeing pe- seeing kids reintegrate and seeing it be successful, you know, with this type of knowledge, talking with somebody that had been in a different uh, a donor, a, you know, a U.S. based person that had been operating in another area of the country, and basically could tell me, you know, full full eyes, full knowledge, the orphanage that I started there went under. Uh, the person that I was working with was not trustworthy, and we don't even know where the kids are now. And just thinking like, that's a terrible, terrible story. That is a child protection issues up the, you know, up the, what do we say? Wazoo. <laughs> say that. Up the wazoo. Up the wazoo. <laughs> up the wazoo. Uh, that, 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 that's a lot of, that's a lot of red flags. And yet here he is saying, but this time it's going to be different, right? And now they're ready to just start a whole new thing. And and what is it that's becoming entangled there? I always think of Jonathan Haidt. I, I know I've mentioned this to at least a couple people on this call. But we are often, our emotions, our intuition, those kind of less rational components of us, that's the elephant that goes wherever it wants. And what we see is that the rider on top of the elephant, this, this is Jonathan Haidt, uh, this is his analogy, but that elephant's going to go wherever it wants. But the rider on top, which represents the rationale, you know, the actual like thinking part it's just going to it's just going to rationalize wherever it went right so we do have to kind of disentangle going back to the word that Hannah used what are our motivations and are we willing to kind of rethink how we're going about this um, because we do become even though even the people that got into it for the right reasons you know and uh, you're talking about a guy here who felt god call him to go run an orphanage in africa right and i actually pursued that so i uh, i really appreciate that I, would, I do kind of want to turn the corner a little bit and get into some kind of lessons learned, some processes and so forth. And I'm going to come 
uh, Ellie, uh, you know, one of the things that you guys have been doing over the last year, um, you know, being an organization that really values interagency collaboration and working across the sector, uh, you guys have been doing uh, some of these transition events where people come to learn uh, about transition from various coaches coming from various organizations you know, what have been some of the lessons that you guys have learned in that space? Can you just kind of tell us about some of the traction that you guys have developed through those engagements? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Faith to Action has been providing coaching, um, personal coaching for a few years now. Um, and our goal is always to help them connect because the best support happens as close as possible to the families and the children and the organization on the ground. Um, but even in that personalized coaching, um, we felt like there were gaps. We didn't feel like it. We were experiencing gaps where organizations would either give up or transition halfway. You know, they would move towards a family style model or they would, um, you know, reintegrate children whose families they knew um, and then never really rethink the, the, the work that they need to do to trace and engage with the other families of the children there. So it, it's been a challenge and a struggle. Um, so one of the ways, the things we wanted to try was to bring people together in something we call a transition connection event. And it's really about connecting, yes, an organization to a coach. Like I was saying, we think coaching is really important, but it's also connecting them to one another, to other organizations in their same situation, and also connecting them to a larger community, helping them build this sense that you are not alone in this work, that this is actually a movement, that there is a supportive community that you can you can feel supported by and connected to. Um, so yeah, we bring together a small group of organizations who are all in similar places early in their transition process. Um, and then um, we bring along a corresponding group of people with experience in transition. We call them champions. Um, and these are people who have, have done work in their context, hopefully as close to the context of the organizations that are actually participating as well. Um, and then we spend three days just being together. So we, of course, we cover topics like, you know, um, getting internal buy-in, engaging stakeholders, building capacity of your staff, family tracing, some of the more, we give a, just kind of introduction to some of the more detailed work, social work around family and child preparation and placement and monitoring. Yes, so there is content, but every time we've done this, the content has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter because what's really helpful is the dialogue, um, the opportunity for people to engage with the content, to think through it with other people in a safe space. So they have a chance to talk to one another, to other organizations, to these coaches who really can add they can ask very specific questions too. And then we journey with them um, for the long term, ensuring that you know they are getting the support that they feel like they need, and that we might feel like they need as well moving forward, and really trying to get that connections on the ground so that they have solid support for reintegration of children and moving to models of family-based care. Um, so we did just complete a, a pilot phase in the spring, and we're um, opening it up to the public now, so you might see some promotion of that. Anybody can nominate an organization. We'd love to, you know, put the link somewhere in your profile. There are there are other sources. Um, there are other um, things like this that exist. So what we want to do is be very intentional about learning and sharing that learning, so that 
Faith Action would like to get out of the business of supporting transitions. We want to empower and support other people to do that work. That's why we we focus on these champions. And that's why after a certain period, we're going to release all of our findings and we're continually sharing. So just a couple of things um, from the findings. We have a steering committee that gives input into this. We get feedback from our champions. We're we're constantly sharing and trying to, to learn. So one of the things is how important the relational work is. Um, developing trusting relationships, um, supporting people through something that is very emotional and a challenging place, especially as leaders of an organization. Um, this is something that we've I've started to hear people to call accompaniment and how vital it is to ensure that people feel accompanied and supported and journeyed with. I used to say a few years ago, it's hand-holding, and that sounded a little bit like... Um, uh, like you're just, walking your four-year-old across the street? But it, I mean, but it's a hard journey. And um, I think um, the second piece to that, too, is the need to support organizational change and organizational health. So much of the challenges that organizations face as they're moving into transition are kind of issues that are throughout their organization. And there's it's an organizational health issue. And um, these, you know, gaps get highlighted when you're starting to lead a change like transitioning to family-based care. Um, so it's so important to be able to have access and support and recognize the organizational change challenges, organizational health challenges that will come up. I love that Jonathan said, you know, this term transitional support is just such a limiting term, you know, really is just support because it is, it's not only emotional, psychological support for those leaders, the organizational support, those things are so important. Um, what's cool though, is as Bill brought up, this is personal for everybody that we've worked with. And when it's personal, it's hard because they're deeply invested at so many different levels. And that disentangling work is so challenging for them and for a coach and everyone involved. But it's also really beautiful because then what we see in that process is transformation of a human. It's not just about transitioning a model of care. It's about transformation of people. And that can be very rewarding as well as very, very challenging. So those are two huge kind of findings. I think one other one that I'll mention, I know I'm taking up a lot of time, but it's just exciting learning at this point. The importance of quickly making quality connections to technical support on the ground and ensuring that linkages to care reform networks or local areas of support um, are made as soon as possible. With our events, we reach out to partners in those countries prior to deciding if someone can participate there to know that when they get excited about transition, they have the ability to access technical support because we can see people get excited and make decisions um, out of their exuberance, out of their excitement that could lead to dangerous situations for children. So it's super important to do that. And the only other huge one I would mention is just how important it is to do stakeholder engagement. Um, do not skip this. Do not move to reintegration or rush reintegration. Engaging the board deeply, donors deeply, staff deeply, talking early and being really st- strategic and thoughtful in those conversations. It's not something we can breeze over, but if you do it well, it can really smooth out some of the bumps um, for the transition moving forward. So we're learning these things and a lot more. And my hope is that all of us continually share what we're learning because I'm seeing like Hannah's head nod, Jonathan's head nod, and I know they have five other bullets that they could share and hopefully will share about what we're learning so that we all can do better at supporting these organizations in transition. 
No, that's really good, Ellie. And, you know, this is just supposed to whet the appetite uh, in terms of in terms of, you know, what's out there. Right. And the reason we wanted to bring on not only, you know, faith to action and, and how you guys are really spearheading some of this on the faith based front, but also trying to get those referrals out, but also looking at who's doing this like direct on the ground, you know, and that's why we wanted to tap into ACCI and ways of care as well, because this, there's no way that we could cover all of this, you know, in just one podcast. So I just want to encourage our listeners, check out the show notes. They are embedded in iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening. And of course, I think orphan.com, um, just because there's going to be a lot of follow-up opportunities that are either right for you or right for somebody that you know. And maybe that's one of these transition connection events, or maybe it's reaching out to one of the professionals on this call. Um, but I do, I, I mean, I really want to kind of continue on, not just on the lessons learned that Ellie was just sharing, but looking at what are some of these processes even look like, you know? Um, so I'm going to come to Hannah here in a second. You know, Hannah, what are some of the processes and equipping that are necessary to transition to family care? And, you know, what role does ACCI play to support those transitions? Oh, I could talk about that for way too long. I'm going to just nerd out for a minute on that. Um, so, you know, there's so much good work that's been done, you know, collaboratively with everybody right here on this podcast um, through the transition uh, Transitioning Residential Care Working Group. That's part of the global platform um, around just building an awareness of all the different elements and components and phases. I think that was your phrase, actually, that you came up with, the phases of transition. Um, because like Ellie was saying, so many people skip certain parts of it or they might, you know, think that reintegration is actually the sum total of transition. And that's absolutely. You know, it's understandable. It's a very important part, but it's also very dangerous to think of it that way because of all the other things we've talked about. And so, you know, that stakeholder engagement piece, like Ellie was talking about, is so important. Um, everything that happens post-transition is is important for keeping, you know, the funding in the country for child welfare services where the governments don't have enough. Um, and then I think one that also gets overlooked very often is that kind of middle stage between re- uh, sorry between engagement and the actual reintegration or implementation would be that preparing for change spot. And it's, I get it because that's the boring part. That's the, that's where you're looking at what you've talked about, Ellie, when you talk about the organizational health, but you can't expect um, an organization that's been running with very loose structures with very little knowledge of child protection, child development to then fully go into a very completely different program. And so that's one of the areas where I think, um, a lot of awareness has been raised through the the more recent tools and collaborative efforts um, of this group um, to bring in awareness around why do we need to look at policies and frameworks of the organization? Why do we need to look at those gaps? Why are those important? Why do we need to conduct risk assessments for the project? And I'm, I'm not talking about child protection risk assessments. I'm talking about the fact that somebody's coming in with an in- intervention, which is transition. So the fact that you're introducing transition to an institution is inherently a risk because it's something new that you're doing. So even if it's because, you know, you want to get the kids out and it's better for them, ultimately, you still have to kind of look at that very analytically to say, where could that actually cause more harm? And that's that's all embedded within the fa- phases of transition tool that we've been working on together um, and highlights the need for, for a lot a very close look at those procedures before we can actually look at moving children. Yeah, I think that's really good. I I, I like how it's sometimes the boring part that that is really the pieces of it that actually set up for success, or it's the hard part to kind of self reflect and 
think about your policies and procedures. It's it's not necessarily what we a lot of the people in nonprofit space anywhere in the world get into it for that purpose. You know, they want to see impact, right? And so unfortunately, a lot of organizations around the world, especially in the global south, south don't have the fundamental like training and education or experience in or resources funded to to cover that kind of stuff, organizational design and HR planning and finance management and legal and policy frameworks. Like it's the piece that we around the world and space, we we woefully underfund almost all the time. And that's because we want to see impact. And and the reality is impact can't really come if we're not healthy holistically. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, I think the other thing, Ellie, you said that's I think just so core to this, it's really about relationships. Uh, and you know, transition is not necessarily a very technical thing. It's a relational thing. And I think what we've learned in the process we we kind of follow as a guiding process overall is that when we when we were doing reintegration, what we learned was these families were broken not because of poverty or health or hygiene or or other kinds of typical interventions. There's a broken relationship somewhere deep in there. Um, and that most families are actually separated not because of um, you know, these external factors like poverty, but they're broken because of, of broken relationships. And, and if I think if you run the math on it, you'll find that there's a lot of people in poverty that are in strong families. Uh, and so recognizing that the core is broken relationships, you know, the goal then is to bring relational solutions, provide a social worker, a counselor to show up on a regular basis in those families to help them restore those relationships. That's the key. And so as we started working through transition support services, what we're finding is the same is true. There's broken relationships, relationships between staff, relationships between management, between board, between the government officers and the donors. There's trust and distrust and there's fear and shame. And that ultimately in these institutions, they're experiencing a lot of shame, especially because the way that care reform started in deinstitutionalization in Kenya was shut down or we'll close you down kind of attitude. Um, they're rightfully afraid that someone's going to come in one day and pull the rug out from them. And so going in and being able to deal with the humanity of it and provide a relationship is what we, what we, what we do. We've got a team of, you know, a Kenyan staff with a great experience in social work counseling and um, organizational management. And they show up every month on a regular basis to each organization. And, and it's a personal relationship is what we offer. And that personal relationship is there to help them walk the journey, knowing that each and every organization is unique and different. And we all have a map. Uh, BCN and, and ACCI and Faith Action have done an amazing job of really laying out all of the, the key frameworks and understandings that need to be uh, understood in order to do transition. So now all we're doing is building on that by putting a person uh, there with that information on a regular basis to help them figure out their particular journey. Each one takes a unique step, but we all got to go through all four phases. Or, you know, it's we all got to walk through the basic same journey. But but I think the key is just putting a human being there who's trauma informed, who's focused on understanding that this is about relationships and then equipping and and reconciling relationships when they're broken between donors, between the government, between staff. Uh, and I think that when we start there. The other processes like um, organizational design and 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 uh, finance planning and policy planning, they actually are they're actually not directly those activities. They're actually team building. They're about participatory approach. They're about getting 
the leaders equipped to build the capacity of their team in their relationships. And so when we look at it as a relational intervention, then the technical boring stuff kind of becomes a little bit more fun uh, because it's about having fun together and learning together and growing together and learning how to make decisions together. And so that's, I think, what I've ultimately learned in the key process we focus on. So, Yeah. And I think that's the technical side of it, you know, while it is critical, you know, to this space, you really can't have it alone. It has to come hand in hand with that journeying. Yeah. And I think everybody can speak to that. Um, because it's not really fair, honestly, to expect the average person to take these kinds of tools and say, hey, you go and work it out. It's, yeah. you know, we couldn't do it. Um, it took us years to come up with this stuff and, you know, a hundred brains in the room. So how could we expect the average donor to do that? So I think that's where, you know, the technical support orgs, for lack of a better uh, term, I guess, is all the stuff that comes with it. So it's that coaching, it's the you know, when this happens, can I pick up the phone and call someone and say, what do I do? You know, I don't have a manual for how to deal with this specific problem. And so that's, um, I think, a really integral part of all of the work that we're doing is that that journey, that coaching. And I don't think yeah. it's actually very responsible um, to offer those kinds of um, tools and resources without that extra support. Yeah. And on, on that note, can we just really quickly, you know, I mean, we're going to have a, a last question where you guys are just going to be able to talk about first steps for people. But let's say people are, are looking for tools and resources that, I mean, as you said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage anyone to just go find a tool resource, read it and go, oh, there's the answers. Um, you need to talk with people who have been through this. But can you give some even tools and resources of personal people and, and organizations and things like that that people can go to, you know, if they have, if they have questions, if they want to um, get some help? in this area. So I, I don't know um, if you want to start with that, Ellie, and just real quick, as we're wrapping up, just give some some tools and resources that you know. I mean, whether they're people, organizations, or actual things they can read to get a, an idea of the nuances of what's going on here. Yeah. Well, I do want to give a shout out to the phases of transition interactive diagram that Hannah's been talking about. Okay. You can just that first glance, it's separated from preparation or it's from, I think it's a, a learning preparation and implementation. Um, it's just I, when I work with organizations in those first initial conversations, it's just helpful to go, oh, there is a process here. People have been through it. I'm kind of giving a sense. I can kind of start to look and say, we have competency in these areas, but we don't have any competency in these areas. Um, and so you kind of get a sense of where you're going to need help and support. So I think that's a super helpful. I mean, and the fact that many organizations came together and all provided their kind of uh, their their process that they journey people through. I asked for that like ten, nine years ago and people were kind of like, oh, I'm not ready uh, to share it because I'm not sure what's going to happen. Um, but in this uh, last few years, people have shared it and put it all out on the table because people know the demand is, I think someone had mentioned it, maybe Jonathan is like, no one organization is going to be able to do this and it's happening. So we've got to work together. So um, that that consolidated knowledge is in the phases of transition interactive diagram. There's also case studies that I have found really exciting. We have, I think, uh, maybe around 15 brand new case studies of organizations that have gone through a transition. And um, those are just great to read. You're not going to find one that's exactly what your organization is going through, but you're going to start to like, it's all going to start to the connections going to happen when you really hear about what this has looked like for organizations. Um, so 
both of those on Better Care Network's website. You can just Google case studies or you can just Google phases of transition and it pops up. So that's great. Um, when it comes to faith-based organization that's getting funding from the U.S. or has a headquartered U.S., we faith to action. That is what we do. We uh, I, I fundraise my booty off so I can have people ready to pick up and talk to you on the phone. Um, so we are here to help. All of our services are free uh, because we want you to have access to best practices. And then there's hundreds of individuals and organizations out there, probably one in the very country that you are working or living in that are a resource. And I want to name some off, but then I'll be showing like favorites and I'm scared to do that. But um, three of them, four of them are in this um, podcast and there's many more. So it's just a matter of making connections with people who are in your region, in your country, and also maybe have some of the same experiences you have. So we would love to be able to help help you make those connections as I'm sure the other guests would as well. Yeah. And I think for that space particularly, I mean, Faith to Action is is kind of it. You know, that's the entry point when you want somebody to look at that. That's where you direct them to. And I think the case studies, especially that you're talking about, Ellie, all of the face to action case studies, those in some ways I feel are more important and helpful than the actual statistics or reports. And I don't I don't I don't know how many donors actually read the reports that I sent them 10 years ago. Um, because they're very dry, aren't they? And they need they just need to be able to connect, like you said. Um, with somebody who's gone before. They need to know that it's possible. Um, and I love the term champions that you use because when you look at the people who have actually gone through this, roll their sleeves up um, to get their hands dirty and go through it for five years and more, you know, refinance their own homes to pay for it. I mean, they've really been through it. Uh, that connection and that story is going to be so much more powerful than any report or, you know, technical practitioner talking to you about a tool. And so I don't think those can be underestimated. And th those are, like Ellie said, everywhere. And there's really been a push in the recent years to document more of those. Um, and I think the video case studies are really um, impactful as well. So I think anything in that that arena um, is really, really helpful. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I can only promote the tools that I go to. And when I have a question, I go to BCN, I go to Faith to Action, I look for ACCI. Um, and I, I, I think that's that's good i think the other tool or resource is just recognizing the strength you have within you within your own organization i think you gotta start we just ask questions just get really That's good how at positive asking. you are jonathan i have to say well, i need a little more dose of you in my cynical <laughs> life <laughs> good for you well, I'm on the other side i've been through such like hard times and struggles with all this and coming out on the other side and recognizing that yes you know even though all of that is there. This is hard stuff with hard cases and bad situations have happened. And then coming out on the other side and recognizing that there's also something really beautiful here. And th this space is so new still. If you think about the case studies and the tools and the resources, we know very little about transition. If, if only 1,500 organizations have been transitioned in the world, you know, according to this, you know, with this study, then we have a long way to go. And, and the best people who are going to come up with the best answers are on the ground now with what they know and what they have in front of them as their only guide. And so you can go to BCN, go to Faith to Action, go to ACCI, go to One Main Home. Like Great resources are emerging, but more is to be discovered. And the best people to discover it are those on the ground. Uh, organization that transitioned themselves here in Kenya, he, the director just asked great questions. Talk to your kids, talk to your staff, talk to your donors, talk to your community members just ask questions and i think that's what will be a real guide 
because the answers can't really be found so much, you know, on a website. They're found on the ground. Uh, and the website and all those things are great because they'll really help you when you get to those, how do I solve this problem thing? But if we aren't asking great questions in the first place, then we really don't, you know, it's like a car without a steering wheel. Um, so I think yeah. ask great questions. Stakeholder engagement, I'll let you set it. That's number one. If you don't do that, <laughs> you have nothing else to do. Yeah. No, that's really good. Thank you all. I, I think it's good to to be aware of those. And I mean, it takes both. I, I think, you know, even looking at the case studies or some of the free resources that are out there, um, you know, I would just even plug, you know, Journey Home uh, and and the, the trainings that are on there. Um, and hopefully even Think Orphan. I mean, hopefully what we're saying is there are things out there to kind of, again, whet the appetite, help you envision that that transition is possible. Use those resources, you know, use use some of these uh, guidelines or, you know, these kind of roadmaps that are out there and then plug in with somebody. This it doesn't have to be it, it's it's complicated, it's nuanced, but it isn't brain surgery necessarily. You just have to tap into the right people and be able to envision that transition is is possible. So um, just really appreciate each of you guys kind of highlighting that. All right, we got one last final kind of rapid fire question. So Ellie, no long answers this time for for crying out loud. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> we, uh, 60 seconds or less, all right? So if someone is listening to this show, uh, maybe, and, and to be honest, I have to be honest, I mean, especially over the last two and a half years, I talk so much about care reform on this show. Who knows if we still have orphanages listening <laughs> uh, or hopefully orphanages that have transitioned, but uh, maybe they, maybe it's been passed along. Uh, if someone is listening to the show and they are running an orphanage, but have interest in transitioning to family care in 60 seconds or less, what would be your advice to them in terms of taking a first step? I'm going to go to Jonathan first. I write down five names. Five names of people you can go and talk to about this. Closer you can get to the ground, the better. But just start asking questions. Be a discoverer. Uh, be a be a pioneer. No one has all the answers, so we have to find them. Yeah, it's good. Hannah, how would you respond? Very similar. Connect to somebody. Um, ask for help. You know, you're not in this alone. Like Ellie was saying, you know, just know up front that it's you know it's a huge job, and chances are that it's going to be pretty complicated before things get better. Um, but you're not alone. And there's so many of us that have been working in this space for so long who will just be just thrilled that you're here and asking those questions. So we're all here to help you. Um, there's so much that has happened before and we can all learn from it together. Ask for help. You're not alone. That's good. All right, Ellie. Goodness, you guys already took mine. Um, <laughs> I would just say in in that in this community, let's be honest and vulnerable with one another. Um, this is a space of learning. None of us have the answers. It is not us versus them. We are all in desperate need of honest dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so just invite you to bring your questions and bring them humbly um, and bring your solutions too. And we're all going to be better for it. Well, that is a good sentiment to end on in you know that learning posture especially for us i mean this is a faith-based organization if we aren't on a discipleship uh you know track even when it comes to how we provide child welfare services then i don't know what we're doing we need to be applying that that coming alongside other people uh always be humble always try to learn as much as possible um, and i think that if those are our approaches and kind of how we step into this 
I think God's going to be faithful to uh, to 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 meet us in that space. So, uh, Hannah, Ellie, Jonathan, thank you each so much for uh, coming onto the show. I'm going to uh, throw it back to Phil to close us out. Yeah, I I too just want to thank you guys, and I would say add this to the mix of a this episode. I think is a great resource for people that are thinking about this and just having questions about it. Because I think the conversation today was was so grace filled, um, and that's something that I think is it, it models what we need in this. Right? It's just a grace filled conversation to have that posture of humility, that posture of learning. And that's what I felt was here even as we're talking about this. It's it's not saying here's the best thing to go look at and I'll give all you all your answers. No, it's we're learning all this stuff and we will continually be learning all of this stuff um, because we're learning new things that then add to require new questions, which require new ideas. And then it gets us out of our comfort zone. I just did a training yesterday on the fact that most of the best things in life happen just on the other side of our comfort zone and we need to we need to be there and we need to meet people there and we need to push people to get there and uh, I think that this conversation today uh, has done that Uh, I know for me even as I'm learning things and I'm wrestling with different things Um, so the more you do this the more you realize there's a lot more questions and answers that that we have and um, some people have the answers and if we can find each other that that's the great uh, the great thing that we can do here. So with that, folks, thank you so much for uh, for being a part of this conversation. I do encourage you to to wrestle with these things and to um, and to really be uh, challenging yourself to think deeper, to challenge others to think deeper, and to really seek those answer, answers together and work together to find solutions for these for these really important uh, issues in our world today. And with that, I hope that you're pray that you're taking everything you're learning from this show and you're using it to help you to love orphaned and vulnerable children and families better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.